Nicole Simmons, your host for Murder Mondays. Born and raised in a small town in South Carolina, she always had an interest in true crime. And when she got older, she found out that her great aunt was a victim to South Carolina's largest serial killer, Donald Henry Peewee Gaskins. That sparked another fire with Nicole. Always wanting to know more, she took it upon herself to start her research. Nicole's podcast contains mostly interviews from victims, families, and the murderer themselves, all from South Carolina. Tune in to Murder Mondays on Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and more. Welcome back to another episode of Murder Mondays with me, your host, Nicole. Due to Todd getting in trouble by doing a phone interview previously for a podcast, we were unable to do one. However, we've spoken back and forth a lot via messaging, and I've learned a lot. So I will share everything that I can, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Todd Kohlhepp was born March 7, 1971 in Florida. He was raised in Georgia and South Carolina. His parents divorced at a very early age, and his mother was awarded custody and remarried another man the following year. It was later determined that Todd had a very unhealthy relationship with family, especially his stepfather. Born in Florida, Todd says he lived there for all about five minutes before his mother left for Georgia, leaving his father behind to sleep with the other half of women that he had not gotten to in the state yet, but was trying. Todd's mother married eight times and destroyed others' relationships for sport. She figured if she was good enough for someone else, then he would be good enough for her. And through husband number three, Carl Kulhep, he had a stepbrother and sister through Carl, adopting him. Todd hasn't seen him since he was seven. Todd says his childhood was rough as Carl loved to backhand him every chance he could. Kulhep was described as a troublesome child. In nursery school, he was known to be aggressive to other kids and would destroy their property. By the age of nine, he started undergoing counseling. He was described as explosive and preoccupied with sexual content. Supposedly, he tortured animals, shooting a dog with a BB gun, and killing a goldfish with bleach. Todd's father said the only emotion his son was ever capable of was anger. Todd spent three and a half months in a Georgia psychiatric hospital because of his inability to get along with other kids. By 1983, Todd was sent to live with his father in Arizona after his mother and stepfather separated. He took his father's surname and began working a number of local jobs. Todd also inherited his father's hobby of collecting weapons and was taught by his dad to make bombs and blow things up. By 1987, Todd was committing serious crimes. On November 25, 1986, Todd was 15 when he kidnapped a 14-year-old neighbor girl in Arizona. He threatened her with a 22 caliber revolver, brought her back to his home, tied her up, taped her mouth shut, and raped her. Afterwards, he walked her home and threatened to kill her younger siblings if she told anyone about what happened. Kohlhepp was charged with kidnapping, sexual assault, and committing a dangerous crime against children. In 1987, he pled guilty to the kidnapping charge and the others were dropped. 
he was sentenced to 15 years in prison and registered as a sex offender. According to court records, Todd was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder and had an IQ of 118, which was considered above average. The judge said Todd was very bright and should be advanced academically, but behaviorally and emotionally he was dangerous and likely could not be rehabilitated. Todd's probation officer agreed and added that he felt the world owed him something. During Todd's imprisonment, he was initially cited for violations that included some violent behavior, and after turning 20, he had no other records of disobedience. In August 2001, Todd was released from prison after serving 14 years and moved to South Carolina, where his mother lived. During his imprisonment, he attended and graduated from Central Arizona College with a bachelor's degree in computer science. From January 2002 to November 2003, he worked as a graphic designer for a company in Spartanburg. He began studying at Greenville Technical College in 2003. Todd transferred to USC Upstate the following year and graduated in 2008 with a Bachelor of Science degree in Business Administration Marketing. Despite being a registered sex offender, Todd was able to get a real estate license on June 30, 2006, after he lied about a felony charge on his application. From this, he built a firm that had a dozen of agents. He was recognized as a top-selling agent in the Carolina region. The firm was shut down after his arrest. Todd also acquired a private pilot's license and several properties out of the state. In May of 2014, he purchased nearly 100 acres of land located in an area nine miles from the community of Moore, South Carolina. He then spent $80,000 to fence in the entire property. A customer who sold her home to Todd remembered him as extremely outgoing and professional, but noted he often talked about his firearms and made subtle sexual innuendos during their conversations. A banker who worked with Todd claims he would often watch pornographic videos, even at work. Todd often visited the Waffle House, where his behavior disturbed the waitresses. One of the waitresses was Megan Lee McGraw-Coxie, which was one of his victims. On November 6, 2003, a customer found four people shot to death inside Superbike Motorsports, a motorcycle shop in Chesney, South Carolina. The victims were owner Scott Ponder, age 30, service manager Brian Lucas, age 30, mechanic Chris Sherbert, age 26, and bookkeeper Beverly Guy, age 52, who was Ponder's mom. All four died from multiple gunshot wounds. Before Todd confessed to the shootings in 2016, investigators believed the gunman was armed and entered the shop from the back. According to Todd's mother, he attempted to return something, but the employees laughed at him, would not return the money for what he'd paid for, and embarrassed him for not knowing how to ride the bike.
Todd says the bike shop employees were as nice as they could be when buying the bike, but once the papers were signed and the money was handed over, attitudes changed. Todd says Brian was the one with the mouth. He admitted to stealing the bike back, told Todd, fuck you, and asked Todd, what are you going to do about it? Those words, what are you going to do about it, Todd said would not leave his mind. So he left. He came back two and a half to three months later, figuring they'd cooled down by now, and maybe they were just having a heated bad day. But as soon as Todd walked in, Brian asked if he was back to get another bike stolen, and everyone thought it was funny and laughed. Todd says, Scott never stood up stood up to Brian, nor neither did he seem to address the issue. Todd says he left and made plans. He came back on November 6, waited for the customer with his kid to leave, then shot Chris in the mechanics area. Beverly, when she came out of the bathroom, which he had no clue she was there, then Scott and Brian. Todd says, looking back, I wish I had just let it go and walked away. But with that said, Todd says there's no excuse for becoming violent. Over the years, you know, I learned that we have lots of choices when we have some bad things thrown our way and we can either crumble in a corner and make it worse or we can say why did I have to go through this and what do I need to learn from it and what can I do for somebody else hey it's Nicole Simmons how are you hello I'm good how are you doing good y'all staying well yeah we're trying well I'll tell you a little bit about myself so I'm born and raised in prosperity South Carolina this might sound weird but hear me out it won't it won't trust me (laughs) i had always been interested in true crime i remember just as a little girl my dad was either watching the news or the history channel and i was bored to death of that and my mom if she ever got the tv away from dad would watch 48 hours or cold case files and all that stuff so i just kind of went with mom then later on As I got older, I found out that one of my great aunts was a victim to the largest serial killer in South Carolina. His name was Pee Wee Gaskins. Okay, yep, I'm familiar. So she was a victim to him, and that's kind of what got me started. I'm just a one-person show. Yeah. (laughs) I'm a a wife, a mom, I own a hair salon, and I work there full-time. So this is just something I do on the side. Yeah, just kind of like a hobby. Yeah. I like to try to tell stories in a little bit different way. A lot of people tell the story. I feel like victims don't get the recognition they deserve. I totally know what you're saying. I can't stand when you say some horrible person's name, like a murderer, and everybody knows who that is. But if you were to say a victim's name, they're like, who is that? And that bothers me really bad. (laughs) Right, right. I'm not sure how long you lived in South Carolina. I was there for five years. Okay. Well, most likely before that, back in 85, there was a 
horrible murder and it was not far at all from where I grew up at my parents house and everybody knew the name Larry Jean Bell and everybody knew Sherry Smith but nobody knew the little nine-year-old girl that he kidnapped out of the front yard and killed yeah. so I interviewed her mom this morning I drove about two hours down to the low country and met her and she deserves a voice too oh, yeah. so Right. That's just my thing. Right. I like to yeah. try to tell the story in a little different way, right. and then right instead of it being the sensational thing that you know, which I mean, crimes are they're they're sensational, of course, in nature. We get that. It's funny because that you know I've had this conversation with a few of the podcasts who, thankfully, not all of them, but you know, a few of them do have the same kind of idea that you do, where. You know, why are we talking about this individual when there's all these people whose lives were altered and changed and what's going on with them now? And what's, you know, how does this affect them? Who cares about it? Right. One of the guys I did, I didn't actually know that he had been talking to Todd in mm -hmm. prison and actually had him on his podcast. Then he interviewed me and I found out kind of after the fact that he had interviewed him <laughs> and I thought, well, what are you interviewing him for? You don't even know if anything he's saying is true. Correct. Um, yeah, I found that out after the fact, and it was kind of, you know, like, oh, well, that sucks. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if those people can tell the truth if they tried. <laughs> oh, no. I mean, it's so skewed from the way they see it. I think they want to believe it. Right. That, yes, they, I mean, even his details are... I mean, I know that he did it, but even his details are, they're just, some of them are ridiculous. To get started, tell me a little bit about yourself, like where you're from and growing up, what life was like. My name is Melissa Brackman, formerly Melissa Ponder. I'm the surviving widow of Scott Ponder, owner of Superbike Motorsport Suzuki. I am originally from a small town in Arizona by the name of Stafford. And it was just a little farming community, not tiny, but not big. Four high schools there and a very large copper mine. It's like maybe the second largest in the world was about 45 minutes away. My dad was the band director at my high school and the baseball coach as well. So we were a very musical and sports oriented family. I more gravitated towards the sports side than I did the music side. So out of five kids in my family, I'm the second. I ended up with a basketball scholarship, and my siblings all ended up with music scholarships. So I kind of <laughs> was a little black sheep in the family, but my dad loved it. He loved that he had a daughter you know, that was super athletic, and I was pretty tomboyish growing up. I liked to try to do things, you know, that would outdo the boys. Mm -hmm. You know, the older I got, I, I realized that it was okay to be athletic because boys did like that too. <laughs> and so, I don't know, it's just something that I kind of shown at and got the attention of colleges. And so I got my college paid for, which was nice. Mm -hmm. You know, I did go away to college and then came back to Arizona. And from here, I got a job with an independent broker who represented Harley-Davidson and their extended warranty program mm -hmm. for their motorcycles. And so I kind of came into the motorcycle industry from a whole different direction than 
what Scott was from. You know, obviously he dealt in crotch rockets and all the speed stuff. And I feel like I was more in the Rolex riders, you know, rich old men buying <laughs> motorcycles. Not all of them rich, but where I was, Scottsdale, Arizona, is just a lot of money. I was told that I needed to meet one of my supervisors out of New York one weekend at the motorcycle dealer show in Indianapolis. It was something I was actually hesitant to go to. I was mid to late 20s and I was fresh off a divorce. I just thought the last thing I want to do is go hang out in a testosterone filled city for the weekend <laughs> because, you know, motorcycle shows, there's just men everywhere. I mean, I kind of stood out a little bit. So I just thought, oh, this is not something I want to do. But my boss was like, look, you know, you've done really well and they kind of want to wine and dine you all weekend and I thought okay well I can do that that's actually where I met Scott and it really was just a bumping elbows I'm at the bar at Outback because there was no other place to sit because there were so many people in town that weekend and that's truly how I met him <laughs> just like bumping elbows <laughs> <laughs> did you just hit it off right then Again, I, you know, I was fresh off a divorce. Like that, that's just not something that was really on my radar or anything I was looking for. And he was actually married at the time. And, it, you know, again, not something that I um, really got into with him. I mean, started a conversation. He, I was there with my supervisor. He was there with a, a friend of his who he had brought to the dealer show. And so it was just very casual conversation, but it was comical because I could hardly understand him. Because his southern accent was so thick and so deep that I felt bad. I kept having to say, I am so sorry. Can you repeat yourself? I mean, that's just kind of how our conversation started. And again, it, it was just a super light, nothing heavy. What I ended up doing is ran into them a couple more times during the show. And then we exchanged numbers before he left because he wanted to be set up with one of the extended warranties that I represented, which that would just make me more money. So like, sure, I will make sure we get that all set up. And so that's kind of how it started. I mean, it really was just a friendship that started. And then he had his own marital problems, things that he went through. And we eventually, I mean, he started confiding more in me with things that were going on. And it just what started as a friendship just ended up blossoming into something more but that I mean literally maybe a year and a half later wasn't anything instantaneous it wasn't anything like that and of course I live in Arizona he lives in South Carolina it wasn't like I was gonna give up my very lucrative job at the time and just move cross-country haha ha, jokes on me that's exactly what I ended up doing <laughs> that's just kind of how it all got started so was Scott born and raised in South Carolina he was born in Spartanburg, and that's where he had lived his whole life. So how long had y'all been married? Did he own the bike shop before you and him met? He did. At the time we met, it was just Superbike Motorsports, but within about a year of me being there, he was approached by Suzuki because he was selling more Suzukis than the Suzuki dealer there in town. And so they were like, buddy, you might as well be a dealer, which was his dream. That's what he wanted anyway. And so then he became an actual certified dealer. He always owned the business on his own. There was never another owner. 
and he just kind of built it from the ground up. It started as a hobby in his teen years to his early 20s because he worked at Milliken, and like pretty much everything he made, he just dumped into that business and just built it from the ground up. He had probably been an active dealer when I met him, like actually buying, selling motorcycles with a building and everything for 10 years mm-hmm. when I met him. How long had y'all been married? When he was killed, we had been married two years. We had gotten married in 2001. That was in January of 2001, and he was killed in November of 2003, so really just short of two years. Was there ever any talk of Todd as a client personally? I know that in some fields we're not supposed to come home and talk about patient confidentiality and stuff. And, and, you know, with this kind of thing, no, it was very open conversation. And I knew a lot of customers and I knew a lot of things that occurred down there. And there was never a whole lot of anything that he felt threatened or felt law enforcement. I want to say maybe in that whole 10 years was called once or Mm -hmm. maybe just because of some customer either showing up having a bad day and or intoxicated customer I want to say just stuff like that it was a very family friendly business because I mean there was go-karts on the floor and tiny four-wheelers and little dirt bikes and big dirt but it just there was something for everybody there Mm -hmm. and so to answer your question Todd was not a name that I had heard previously he had a lot of customers. He sold a lot of motorcycles, and he just wasn't somebody that he talked about or I don't know or had issues with. Mm-hmm. Or maybe he felt he didn't think he had issues with. Where were you on November 6, 2003? I worked for Spartanburg Area Chamber of Commerce. I was a membership consultant there, and I handled small business seminars. I was actually – I was planning on working half the day because I was newly pregnant and I had just a lot of morning sickness at the time. Just just felt yucky a lot. Mostly that first probably four or five months of the whole pregnancy. And I was seven weeks along at the time. I um, was planning on coming home. I was going to come hang out at possibly at the dealership or just go home and take a nap. And I talked to Scott about About 2 o'clock that day, he was planning on um, sponsoring a Wofford College football game that weekend. He was going to be giving away a go-kart. Go-karts were anywhere from $1,500, you know, $3,000. And for him, it was just kind of paying for publicity. Really, all I had to do, they were just giving anybody to watch into the football game tickets, and they would do a drawing at halftime, and they would go home with a free go-kart. So we kind of talked about what he wanted said over the intercom during the football game about his business and you know just stuff like that so that was our conversation that was probably like two o'clock and then probably about 3 30 is when I got a phone call after I talked to him had planned on coming home or going out to the dealership our home was very close to the dealership and so I got a phone call telling me that I needed to take some business, I want to say, what was it, maybe membership materials to a business, and I needed to drop them off that afternoon before I went home. That was no problem. So I was getting ready to take that stuff to this business, and I received a phone call on my phone telling me, hey, I think you need to get out here. 
the cops are everywhere. They blocked off the road. Somebody kind of whispered there might be a shooting. And I just like, what? <laughs> you know, so I hung up, started calling Scott. His cell phone went straight to voicemail, started calling the dealership number. I kept getting the message. I was leaving message after message. And at that point, I called my mom. I mean, I started racing out there, but I called my mom in Arizona and said, I really don't know what's going on. Keep us in your prayers because I can't get a hold of them. And so I got on Paris Bridge Road and I had a news van, like literally pushing me up the road. And I didn't understand. I had no idea what was going on. And I mean, it probably took me 20, 25 minutes to get to the bend in the road. And there were cops everywhere, probably 10 blocking off the road. I saw a helicopter flying up above us. They wouldn't let anybody around the corner because once you got around the corner, you could see the front of the dealership. And so I got out of my car and I just started running. I said, I have to get down there. That's my husband's business. And this cop came running after me and just grabbed me and said, you're not going down there. Again, not clueless. I had absolutely no idea what was going on or what had happened. Mm-hmm. So was this your first pregnancy? This is your first it, child? It was. Yep, it was. I mean, we thought that it was just going to be easy, like, hey, we want to have a baby and we'll just get pregnant. Easy. And it, it wasn't. We actually had some issues and we had to go to the doctor and we actually did IVF and had three embryos transferred and I got pregnant with one, thankfully, because had I had three, that would have been a whole different story for me. But he really is the one that kind of pushed, why aren't we getting pregnant? What's the deal? So I got to the doctor and I had endometriosis. And then they had kind of found with him that he also had a low sperm count. So we had a lot working against us. Mm-hmm. The doctor just said, we're just going to start with this. And we were lucky enough to get pregnant on our first try. That's always hindsight. I always look at that and they say timing's everything. Mm-hmm. And that pregnancy really was because I wasn't in a huge hurry. Scott didn't understand why I wasn't pregnant already. And I look back at a lot of that and think, and if this is what his fate was going to be, it all happened exactly in perfect timing. Exactly. So how would you say this has changed your life? I feel like I've prided myself on always being outgoing and positive and I'm not one that am too serious. I can make fun of myself. I can call myself a dumb blonde. I am educated. I, you know, went back to school, got my master's degree. I, but at the same time, I have tried always not to take life too seriously. And the thing that this did for me really is just it opened my eyes more to the fact that really bad things can happen to good people. Mm-hmm. we're not immune from it. Even if we are living our lives in a manner that's pleasing to us, pleasing to others, pleasing to God, things do happen. And I think that I became a more um, empathetic person and a more sympathetic, even though I felt like I was already that way, this changed me in a way that now I can't watch the news and not see, you know, either a grieving mother, a grieving wife, a children and not be affected by it right my tears come pretty easy and the first thing that comes to my mind I obviously I can't save everyone or help everyone but if there is a way I want to Mm -hmm. I have created a lot of friendship widows other widows that are around my age in many different groups I've been able to speak at a couple of conferences and just kind of share my story and 
feel like if anything, it's just, I'm so much more aware mm-hmm. than I used to be. So what memory would you like to live on and for people to remember about Scott? He was the happiest person. He had a smile that was huge. He had the ability to make people feel very comfortable around him. And I think that's why he was so successful with his business. He loved little kids. He loved animals. He loved fast motorcycles. And he was really excited um, to be a father. When we first met, that was something that he decided he wanted. And I don't think he had wanted that before, previously in, in his marriage. And if anything, even though he died at a young age, I feel like he accomplished everything that he had set out to do. And that's having a family. Because even though he wasn't here, it did happen. And I feel like he inspired other people, especially young people that were setting goals and trying to achieve them. He's just a contagious person. So how old is your child now? He is 17 years old. He's right here. You're welcome to ask him any questions if you would like. (laughs) And it's completely up to you, but he's 17. He's a senior. He looks a whole lot like him now. (laughs) He didn't. For a long time, he looks more like my family, but the older he has gotten, he's tall, he's thin, he smiles like him. He's a funny kid. It's funny, you know, with him never having actually met him, the things that he has from him. Mm -hmm. It's awesome. I mean, DNA is an awesome thing. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. For sure. It really is. Yeah. Well, I'm sure he has heard many great stories of his father. You know what? He has, and he has a lot to be proud of. He came from a loving marriage of two people that really wanted him, and I think that with all that goes on in our world, I think that's one step ahead of some people. For sure. (laughs) He's a good kid. Gets good grades. He's just one I don't have to worry about a lot, and I'm really grateful for that. Mm Mm-hmm. Would you have any memory you'd like to share to live on for Beverly? She was an incredible human. She welcomed me into her home from the get-go, and she just was so complimentary and so grateful, I think, to what Scott and I had and what we brought to each other. She was a light. It's funny because I know that when people die, people put them on a pedestal and talk about them like they never did anything wrong. I could list off Scott's fault. That's not why we're here. People ask all the time. I can't think of anything bad she ever said about anybody. She was just a good example to me. She made me want to be a better person. And those that were around her, They would tell you the exact same thing. Anybody she ever worked with, anybody that she was ever around, they would say the same thing. She just was a beautiful person. She spoke highly of everyone. She didn't have ill thoughts about people, and I love that about her. That's something that I always try to share with other people, especially people that know her. They would 100% agree with me. Mm -hmm. Was there anyone else working in the bike shop that was related to them? No, we had Brian Lucas, who was just one of his really good friends and his service manager and then his employee, Chris, but they were not related, no. The stories that Todd tells about how it went down, is there any kind of video footage that tells the truth? You know, unfortunately... 
at our stage of his dealership, we have not set up 90 cameras yet. Although, ironically, that was something that was on our to-do list and in the works because he just kept expanding and getting bigger and bigger. And so that just had not happened yet. Todd does boast of how quick he got in there and how fast he got it done. And like without regards for like taking a human life, I don't think really anybody will ever know how fast that occurred, what really happened. I do know that Scott more than likely, according to the coroner, that he did die instantly. And I was actually grateful to hear that. Mm -hmm. You just don't want to picture your spouse lying there bleeding to death or in pain or in agony that was just something that I I could stand the thought of and they were so good to just tell me that wouldn't have happened with him and really any of them in regards to Todd as a person especially not knowing who did this and when it finally did come out that he was the individual and his reasons and what had happened and occurred down there I had had a lot of time to come to terms with the entire thing. I had had a lot of time, therapy, <laughs> years, mm-hmm. a lot of time. And when it did finally come out, and then I was able to do a little bit of homework on him and look at him as a person instead of this monstrous, I look at this poor little kid that it sounds to me did not have a very loving upbringing. Mm-hmm that didn't have people that cared about him and loved him unconditionally. And I feel like that's what played out in his older years. Not that that's any excuse. It's not. I know a lot of people that haven't had the perfect upbringing, but they haven't killed anybody. I was able to read a psychological evaluation of his when he was younger, like 10. And then I was also able to read his psychological evaluation from after he was arrested. And there was just some things in there that it was hard for me not to be affected by it. There's never a reason to take a human life. That's not our job. And I let him know that. It doesn't matter how many times somebody makes you mad or disappoints you. It's not your job. That's not what we do. I am at a point where I feel sorry for him. I don't hate him. I'm not numb anymore towards him because for a long time I was. If anything, I just feel like It didn't have to be this way. It is, but that this could have had a very different outcome. Maybe had he been shown a different life. I don't, you know, I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe he was born this way, but that's just what I've gathered from some of the things I've learned and some of the things about him. I think that he thrives on attention Mm -hmm. and that's where his insecurities lie. He needs people to want to know more about him. And I think he sensationalizes a lot of things to make himself look better. I've just learned over the years that people that are very insecure, that's what they do. Mm-hmm. Again, I, I'm not an expert on any of this, but I feel like I've been able to see it all for what it was. And we were just a young married couple that we were happy, in love, newly pregnant, had a whole life ahead of us, and somebody took it away. And I think that over the years, I learned that we have lots of choices when we have some bad things thrown our way, and we can either crumble in a corner and make it worse, or we can say, why did I have to go through this, and what do I need to learn from it, and what can I do for somebody else, because... 
in essence, that's what made me feel better, I think, was reaching out to others that have gone through stuff. And I'm no angel. I've had pretty bad days, but that's what helps the most. Yeah. Do you forgive Todd Colehip? I do. And I was able to tell him face to face. So you did get to meet him? I did, only in court. Mm-hmm. I was able, to, yes, to read a statement to him, let him know that I forgave him, that I didn't hold any ill will. And I also let him know that while some of that was for him, most of that was for me so that I could let this go and move on with my life as well. Because I don't want to be stuck in a spot where I'm harboring so much hatred towards anybody. I'd rather move on. Just it happened and it was sad. And yes, it put us in a lot of uh, newspaper articles and TV shows and magazines. And But at the same time, I feel like a lot of good came from it as well. Mm-hmm. Did he have anything to say to you when you forgave him? He put his head down, and again, I wish I could relive that moment, but I felt I heard, I'm sorry. As I walked past him after I had read my statement, and I'll never know for sure, but it's what I heard. All I can tell you is exactly what he told me. So he lost his phone privileges for 22 months because he did an interview with some podcaster, and he that's not allowed. Right. And when I had reached out, before I ever reached out to you, I had reached out to the jail, and they told me that that stuff is not allowed. Right. So I sent him a message, like mail. Right, right. And the one thing I wanted to know was, are you sorry, and do you have any regret or remorse? And he went down a list of of people I don't even know about. I didn't know who he was talking about because according to him, he's done a lot more than just... Oh, oh yeah, we've heard that. Yes, no, there, there's no question. And I actually believe that. But when he got to the four victims from the bike shop, yeah, he said, I wished I would have walked away. Wow. I can send that to you in a message. I <laughs> would love to see that because I've never heard him say those words or even see it making me emotional. <laughs> That's the first time he's ever said anything like that. I kid you not. He said he wished he would have walked away. Wow. Mm-hmm. I also asked if he had found the Lord again because at one time I had read that he had moved to South Carolina from Arizona and that right. he had started going to right. church and that he had went to church to ask for help, and a Baptist church, it's in his letter, I'd have to go back and find it, but it was a Baptist church in Spartanburg, and they told him, according to him, that he needed to find another church. They pretty much weren't interested in helping him. Wow. And he blames that, because he swears that he was trying to get help, and that he couldn't get the help, and he didn't know how else to handle it, so he started back doing this kind of stuff but I just had to tell you that wow (laughs) that is literally the first time he has ever said anything like that well I'll go back into my messages there's a wow that actually means a lot (laughs) (laughs) I asked him though if he'd ever find the Lord again and he said no they've let me down too many times and I pray that he will me too honestly I feel like that's the only piece I've mentioned that thing to my kids so many times. I've told them that you can have 
absolutely bazillion dollars in your life. And, and it doesn't mean anything if, if there's not something that you're actually looking to or trying to achieve, because ultimately this is all going to be gone. Mm-hmm. And ultimately there has to be something else. And if we don't have anything else that we're looking forward to after this, what's the point? Right. And it's funny that you mentioned that because I have talked with Lorraine Lucas, Brian's mom, a little bit. And we've talked about going down there to see him. We've mentioned it a couple of times. And I wouldn't put that past us at some point. Mm -hmm. And I think it'll all just be when it just feels right and the timing's right. And I might take my son with me. Because Scotty also, he forgave him. He also read a statement and told him he didn't want anything bad to happen to him. That's wonderful. It makes me feel good that he actually feels that way. For sure. Did Brian or Chris have wives or children? They did, yeah. Brian left behind a wife with two young kids, very young, under five, like three and one or something like that. And then uh, Chris was not. He had a girlfriend, I believe, but no kids. They still reside in South Carolina? They do. It became such a weird circumstance. She was very bitter with Brian's parents and actually kept those grandkids from them their Mm. entire lives. Mm. Not good. And they're now grown, and it's kind of backfired with her because now the kids, I mean, I've kind of been told that the relationship with their mom isn't the greatest, and the Lucases actually took her to court to just have visitation with their grandkids and actually won, and she never did abide by it. Oh, my gosh. That's so horrible. they didn't want to do anything further because they didn't want those kids to hate them. Yeah. That's the side of stuff like this that people don't see all that, you know? Yeah. They just see what's in the news, but all the stuff that goes on behind the scenes, people don't see. Yeah. And the news tells yeah. so much, so many lies. And ironically enough, I have a great relationship with the news. They were always very respectful, and, and I felt as much as, so-and-so wanted the first interview, and so, you know, I get all that. I, even to this day, I still have a great relationship with a lot of the news people out there, and they know they can call me. I've got some of them on my, you know, on my phone, and it's crazy, the contacts that you get in your phone with something. Like, I have, you know, CBS Evening News <laughs> and 48 Hours and People Magazine. It's just weird. It's really, really weird, the contacts you get in your phone. Yeah. But I am really good friends with the Lucas family. Brian had a sister who was actually married, maybe you know this, maybe you don't, to Beverly's husband. They met through all this. Wait, what? Um, So Brian's younger sister, Brian Lucas, Mm -hmm. married Scott's stepdad, Terry. Now, there has to be a bit of an age difference, right? 17 years. Terry was actually seven years younger than Beverly. They actually recently got divorced. Like, I want to say maybe 18 months ago. They have a child, and they're still co-parenting him, and it's actually been a blessing, I think, that they got divorced. But, you know, they met through this whole mess, and I see how it happened. I feel like they needed each other at the time. And, yeah, that's all, like, the the behind-the-scenes stuff that, you know, (laughs) all the stuff that occurs that sometimes you just can't make it up. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Well, I mean, if that's what they needed to get through it, then by right. all means. Right. Yeah. Yep, exactly. 
it's difficult to talk about all the sadness, but right, right. but I I want to bring good out of it. You know what I mean? Is yes, <laughs> yeah. Oh, I do. No, I do. I understand. You don't want it to be this downer thing all the time. And like I said, I mean, we've been blessed in, immeasurably, and I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that I wasn't going to let this ruin everything for me. I just couldn't. Yeah. As much as I miss him and I love him, and I am remarried. I have an, another son. He's a freshman in high school. I have an incredible husband who is actually in law enforcement, cried with me, held my hand the day they called me and told me they had solved it. And it's just been... I meant to ask you that. How long yeah. um, after this incident did you stay in South Carolina? I was there for 18 more months. So I waited until Scotty was born. I wanted him to be born there. He was born at the exact same hospital where his dad was born. Then we stayed a year. Mm-hmm. I honestly thought that this would be solved by then. I really did. And when it wasn't and it kept going on further and further, I just think I've got to go home. I really feel like I need to go home. Right. How did it make you feel knowing that this horrible person was still out there? But that was hard. That part was hard because you're driving down the road every day and you don't know if you're passing them on the road. Right. You don't know. That was hard for me. And the fact that nobody was coming forward and the tips weren't helping and there was thousands of them. And I just needed to get out of there where I wasn't a super recognizable face. Trust me, when I say I love the South, I do. And I miss it every day. I miss the seasons. I miss the accent. I miss the food. (laughs) I miss there's just so much that I fell in love with out there. But I needed to go somewhere where Scotty wouldn't grow up and be like, you know, that's Scott Ponder's son, the, you know, quadruple homicide. I just didn't want that for him. Yeah. As much as we miss it. And we do come out a lot, actually. We love it out there. <laughs> we come out probably three or four times a year. Awesome. Oh, yeah. So we're out there a lot. We love it. Scotty is now old enough. He goes out by himself, which I think is awesome. I can put him on a plane and fly him out there for the weekend and stay with friends and family. And it's honestly, it's been wonderful. He's done it a few times now and he's got friends out there, girls out there that he keeps in touch with. And it's, just, it's great. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, yeah, I don't, I can't think of anything else off the top okay. of my head. Yeah. And if you do, just let me know. I'm glad we got to talk and I feel yeah. like, you know, God made this happen for a reason because totally. The first podcast and the one that I'm doing before I write this one have both been on people who were executed over 30 years ago. And when I started doing this one and telling my husband is previous law enforcement as well. Right. And when I started telling him about this, he did not like the fact that I was going to be talking to this person. Something just told me to do it. Just I I need to do it. And even if it was just for that one statement from him to tell you, I mean, honestly, I got the chills when you told me he's never said anything like that. He's never, he's never regretted it. I feel like there's a reason for everything. As hard as some things are, God doesn't give us more than we can handle. Oh, for sure. And I'm really glad we got to talk. (laughs) Oh yeah, me too. I really appreciate it. I appreciate sharing that. That's wonderful. Yeah, well, I hope you enjoy your evening, and y'all stay well, and if you ever need to chat about anything off the record, 
I'm uh, here. You know what? Let me know when you do actually put it together because I'll post it on my, my social media. Okay. Sounds yeah. good. Okay. Thank you All so right. much. Thank you. Nice Have to meet you. Evening. You too. All Bye. right. We'll see you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.